Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 17th. In today's news, President Trump issues his second veto, keeping U.S. forces in Yemen. Notre Dame will be rebuilt, but it could take decades. And in a major policy reversal, Bill Barr says asylum seekers will be denied bail. But first, the big idea. After a long night of drinking in Mali's capital, two Navy SEALs and two Marine Raiders smashed their way into Army Staff Sergeant Logan Melgar's room with a sledgehammer. Armed with duct tape, they had a goal. Two of the alleged assailants were called in sworn affidavits. Teach the Green Beret a lesson for leaving them behind in traffic on the way to a party at the French embassy. It was the latest chapter in a feud between Melgar and the SEALs, who had traded accusations about careless behavior that could threaten their mission. One of the SEALs, Petty Officer First Class Anthony Dadolf, a former professional mixed martial arts fighter and a Purple Heart recipient, jumped on Melgar and put him in a chokehold on his bed sometime around 5 a.m., two of the men later told authorities. The other SEAL, Chief Petty Officer Adam Matthews, grabbed Melgar's legs while the two Marines sought to duct tape them. They moved on to Melgar's wrists, but realized he had stopped breathing. All four men now face the same raft of charges, including felony murder, obstruction of justice, and hazing, stemming from the June 2017 death of Melgar, a member of the 3rd Special Forces Group who had served two deployments in Afghanistan. The case drew attention to criminal misconduct allegedly committed by elite U.S. troops deployed to several countries to carry out secretive campaigns against Islamist militant groups, including some affiliated with al-Qaeda. Dadolph and Matthews, another recipient of the Purple Heart, were members of the counterterrorism unit commonly known as SEAL Team 6. The other two men, Gunnery Sergeant Mario Madera Rodriguez and Staff Sergeant Kevin Maxwell, were assigned to Marine Corps Special Operations Command. Some aspects of this case, including the names of the accused and allegations of a cover-up, have been reported previously. But hundreds of pages of legal filings obtained by The Washington Post's Dan Lamoth and Brad Wolverton provide new details about the events surrounding and leading up to the deadly assault. These documents throw back a veil of secrecy on a culture in which womanizing and heavy drinking were said to be commonplace in the city of Bamakau. Despite alcohol restrictions and warnings about kidnappings and terrorist threats, in stipulations of fact, effectively accounts of what occurred submitted to authorities and never previously reported by the media, Matthews and Maxwell acknowledged their roles in Melgar's death. Attorneys for both men said plea deal discussions for their clients are underway, but they declined to discuss most of the specifics. Attorneys for Dadolph and Madera Rodriguez did not respond to requests for comment. The documents describe months of tension between Melgar and Dadolph and another SEAL who was not charged. Melgar and the SEALs lived in the same house while the Marines lived a few blocks away. To limit their interactions, the SEALs had banned Melgar and another Special Forces soldier from their operations center. Melgar had accused the SEALs of bringing prostitutes back to the house, and he vented about the men to his wife, Michelle, in a series of text messages that she turned over to authorities. Over beers and whiskey at a Western-themed nightclub, witnesses told investigators that these four men discussed ways that they could haze Melgar. Melgar returned home a few hours after leaving the other service members behind on his way to that party at the French embassy. Matthews says that he and the other three men who were charged agreed to tape Melgar up when they returned to the shared Navy Army residence. The Marines brought more duct tape and a sledgehammer from their residence nearby. 
Matthews wrote in his stipulation of facts that the sledgehammer was not required for them to gain entrance to Melgar's room, but they used it because they thought that the noise associated with it would further surprise him. Within minutes, the situation had spiraled out of control. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this hump day. Number one, Trump issued the second veto of his presidency last night, rejecting a bipartisan bill that would end U.S. support for the Saudi Arabia-led military campaign in Yemen. The measure had passed the House on a 247 to 175 vote earlier this month and was approved by the Senate last month with the support of seven Republicans. The veto means the United States will continue its involvement in Saudi Arabia's relentless bombing campaign against Yemen's Houthi rebels, waged in the name of holding back Iran's expansion in the region. A senior administration official says Trump was involved in drafting and personally editing the language of last night's veto statement. Trump viewed the Yemen vote as a rebuke of his administration after the killing of Saudi journalist and Washington Post contributing columnist Jamal Khashoggi. He urged senators not to go along with it because it was a rebuke of him, according to several White House and congressional officials. Number two. French authorities launched an investigation into the cause of the fire that engulfed Notre Dame in flames. While President Emmanuel Macron ambitiously promised that the historic cathedral will be rebuilt in five years, experts say it will take far longer. Officials warned that Notre Dame may still have gravely dangerous vulnerabilities, especially in the soaring vault. A few government officials ventured inside yesterday and camera footage shows charred rubble in front of the still intact pews. More than $700 million in private donations were pledged to reconstruct the church in the 24 hours after the blaze. Much of the museum's most valuable art and relics, including a crown of thorns said to have been worn by Jesus himself and a 13th century tunic of St. Louis, were saved. But the destroyed steeple and roof demonstrated how much work would need to be done to return the cathedral to its former glory. Some questions about whether warning signs were missed abound. Paris prosecutor Remy Heights laid out a timeline in which a fire alarm went off about 6.20 p.m., but then no evidence of fire was found. Only when a second alarm went off 23 minutes later was fire detected. The church's rector says that the cathedral's fire watchers were on constant lookout, and three times a day they made assessments in the vulnerable areas under the wooden roof. He said he doubts they could have done anything more. Engineers say the rebuilding effort will likely rely upon cutting-edge technological tools that have been deployed after similar recent tragedies. The French are likely to draw upon expertise gleaned from the Japanese after the Fukushima nuclear disaster and the Brazilians after their National Museum fire, where experimental robots and new digital tools were used to go places that people cannot safely venture and replicate detailed artifacts lost to fire. Number three. In its latest crackdown at the border, the Trump administration announced overnight that migrants who come to the United States seeking asylum may instead wind up jailed indefinitely while they wait for their claims to be processed. Attorney General Bill Barr's written decision of significant policy reversal applies to migrants who have already established a credible fear of persecution or torture in their home country. This isn't just people making these claims. It has been established that they have a credible fear of persecution or torture. Barr ordered immigration judges to stop allowing these asylum seekers to post bail while they wait the months or even years for their cases to be heard, a system Trump has derided as catch and release. Advocates criticized the policy change and said it would lock up people who were simply looking for safety. 
Barr said the order won't go into effect for 90 days, a three-month time frame that will probably see immigrant rights groups challenge the ruling in court. The ACLU says that unless stopped, this decision will result in the unlawful jailing of thousands of people who have no business being behind bars. The group tweeted, quote, we will see the administration in court. And that's The Daily 202 for Wednesday, April 17th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.